Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything has a history, everything you could possibly think of, like porridge, earwax and secrets. Oh, Sam, uncharacteristically, I want to do all of those. Uh, although the, <laughs> the one I want to do most, I have a burning desire to do, is secrets. I went and visited a recusant house last week, and it is... It builds itself as the House of Secrets. I will say no more. It is a secret. But I think we should do a special on the history of secrets. Can you imagine all the mm. different things that you could talk about? Extraordinary. I, I'd love to do that. I had porridge for breakfast this morning, which was a secret, <laughs> until I've just told you it. Yes. And, uh, and uh, any earwax? <laughs> or, or we could do mums, drums and the hum... We could do sums, doldrums, and plums. Can you see what I've done there? <laughs> we we could do. I think doing the dold. No, I'm not going to tempt you to do the doldrums. You'll set us this ridiculous task because what, in fact, we should be doing is not getting sidetracked by all of this. We should, in fact, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example? that the history of old age is in fact all about being rude to people and gendering the muff. It's about William Hogarth's 1746 etching, A Taste of the High Life, and Percy Roberts' Comfort for an Old Maid. It's also all about intergenerational oral history projects between schools and residents in care homes. It's about the history of isolation and loneliness. And of course, of course it is. It's about Turner's famous painting, the Fighting Temeraire. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of mumbling... Yes, it does have a history. This is one that takes us back to the basics of the concepts of histories of the unexpected. It's all about the... What is it all about? It's all about historical <laughs> definitions and talking with your mouth full. It's about 90s rap phenomenon, mumble rap. It's about linguistic compression tips mm. and the history of colour, as well as about Rocky Balboa and Marlon Brando's Don Corleone in The Godfather. It's also about speaking in tongues and the great vowel shift and mass migrations. Who knew? Yeah. We we I, had a. I like that one. I did, and we had a we had a a, a listener. Uh, who got in touch um, and sent us a lovely email. So thank you very much for that. Um, a, quite a sad email talking about her husband uh, suffering from Parkinson's. And one of mm. the things that 
it, it's led to is is mumbling and i'm sorry we didn't i'm sorry we didn't cover that in the podcast but that's a really sort of you know a deeply personal um you know aspect of of the history of mumbling yep. yeah thank you very much for that um a history of stroke as well um i was going to talk about that i'm not sure i did but stroke is one of the classics which causes people, it affects their speech as well. My grandmother on my mum's side, she suffered from Parkinson's and she definitely mumbled. So uh, that's um, reminded me of, of that stage in my life. So thank you very much for that email. That's brilliant. But today, well, let me just say of my uh, fellow presenter, if history were three bears, he would, of course, be Goldilocks. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, the wonderful James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> Hello, Sam. We are on the same wavelength, <laughs> totally. Because you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a bear-related historian, he'd only be the big daddy bear of the history world with the largest bowl of historical porridge, the biggest chair of the past and the comfiest bed in which to read worthy tomes. Ain't no Goldilocks of yesteryear eating, sitting in, breaking and falling asleep in any of those. No Cerebob. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello. That was brilliant, James. Well done. It was a little you've more excelled. effort this week than, than simply a little more these Goldilocks. Caffeine fuels, I think. <laughs> yes, he, yes, you've done well. You've won. Uh, guys, we're doing the history of bears, uh, which is exciting. I'm not entirely sure why we do it, but bears have um, weirdly come into my life recently, so I'm not surprised that I'm thinking about bears. Um, most recently, watching the Queen's funeral, James. Did you see all the bearskin hats? Oh, I did see. Oh, I like where you're going with that. I did see yeah. that. Well, because um, I was, I think I was sitting there with my kids talking about what was going on, and you had the whole paraphernalia of, you know, of uh, of British royalty there, and um, the, the the extraordinary uh, clothing that's worn. Um, and um, a lot of people were kind of explaining what was going on, but not that many people that I saw on telly kind of actually delving into it and explaining why. Um, but I, I mean, I never actually got to the bottom of it for this podcast, but the bearskin hats of the Grenadier Guards, who have a, a really important role in guarding the Queen and, and, and ceremonial occasions, I thought were particularly interesting. And they're, I mean, they're genuinely made out of bearskins and they buy them, they buy a whole load of them every year from Canada um, uh, for, for quite a lot of money. Uh, one thing I did find out about them is that they used to be worn in action, mm. um, but um, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Uh, and it's not just um, uh, English soldiers who were doing it, but uh, also from all over Europe. Um, so wearing a bear skin on your head was a very common and popular thing. But also, uh, of course, it's completely impractical. Um, so not only is it impractical in you've got a very large thing on top of your head, which won't be helpful when you're um, trying to hide in woods and forests and being ambushed. Uh, but it also, which I really liked, is they were very difficult to maintain. So uh, as very often with the whole history of soldiers and soldiering, um, what you look like mattered so much and, and people felt so appalled that their bearskins were not to be shiny and not to be well combed that they simply stopped wearing them for action and only wore them for ceremonial occasions that's a lovely lovely sort of segue there sam i i'm thinking about bears in all sorts of ways and i was thinking i was thinking about several things one is that i'm interested in bear attacks so people being attacked <laughs> by bears um, oh, and, I'm, and I, my starting point there is that brilliant film, The Revenant, 
where Leonardo oh, yeah. DiCaprio's character is mauled by a bear and then left for dead and then, you know, uh, comes back from <laughs> from the dead and, and, you know, and seeks redemption for it or seeks revenge for it. And there's a really interesting study by a Canadian academic called Stephen Herrero called Bear Attacks, Their Causes and Avoidance, which was published in 2002, which I came across for the first time in a brilliant book by Bill Bryson called A Walk in the Woods, which is basically about him moving to America and then walking, or part, partially walking, the Appalachian Trail. And he recounts all sorts of anecdotes from Herrero's book, which I'm going to talk a little bit about there. I'm also going to talk about bear baiting uh, in Elizabethan and Jacobean England. Um, so alongside the Shakespearean theatres, you would have bear pits and where bears would be baited. I'm also going to talk about accidents, people being related to bear attacks, but people accidentally being killed by bears in in um in bear baiting and then uh, pet bears and this is not sort of pet teddy bears although we could go on down the line of Rupert bear and um and Paddington bear etc etc Winnie the Pooh um this is actually people keeping bears as pets uh, so there's a whole sort of, you know, range of ways in which we can ramble around the past, like a sort of bear in a china shop uh, rather than a bull in a china <laughs> shop. We can also think about, mm. I'm thinking about Native Americans and bears. I'm thinking about the symbolism of bear teeth on their their ceremonial costumes, their ceremonial regalia. We can think about the images of the bear, the importance of the bear in heraldry. You know, so all sorts of things that we can, we can unpack. But... Um, who wants to start? Hmm. Me, I'm going to start. Excellent. Just because of what you said there. Um, huh. And uh, the symbolism of the bear, like what the bear is. I think that's actually a really important place to start before we go on and talk about um, things like bear baiting and travelling, which I'm also going to mention something about. Um, it's really interesting the way that the symbolism of the bear in relation to Russia changes in mm. particularly. And it's all to do with the Russian Revolution and a huge rise in satirical journals which appear um, shortly after 1905. So before 1905, there were just 47 journals in Russia. That, to my mind, actually sounds quite a lot. But during the course of the revolution, there are 485. Um, so uh, more than a tenfold increase and um, this gives graphic artists an extraordinary platform. And historians have studied this. And it's very interesting to see how the bear is used as a symbol. We've all heard about the great Russian bear and, um, and, and how its behaviour uh, can, can, be, can be compared to, uh, to a bear and in terms of, of strength. Um, but the point is about this is that the the characteristics of the bear and how the bear is used as a symbol do change over time. So initially, um, the bear is considered something that's very strong, something that can fall asleep for the entire winter and only wake up in the spring. Um, and that strength is a, is a key uh, association with the bear. But then it, it kind of changes in the medieval period to being something that's dim-witted. So you've got medieval authors and uh, medieval illustrators as well particularly focusing on the bear's relation to human vices and virtues because um, it's actually supposed to have several um, I suppose it's some kind of privilege isn't it several sins at once namely being sloth 
lust and wrath. And because of that, it becomes a symbol of Satan. Um, it still carries on being a powerful allegory, a symbol of strength. But it's the lion, of course, which is which personifies strength and also intelligence and nobility, whereas the bear is strong, but the bear is also stupid and lowly. And this is a very different vision of the bear to how it is presented during the Russian Revolution. And the way that that changes, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and we can see it changing in the by the 1870s. This is when it first so, sort of starts to move. Um, it moves away from these particularly negative connotations um, of, of power and and ignorance, particularly. Um, and then we've got 1877. There's a, there's a very important war between Russia and Turkey. When you start getting images of Russia being representing this enormous hibernating power in the East. There's a um, very important uh, journal called the Budilnik in 1877. And for the first time, you have a depiction of a bear holding a rifle, but in its path to Istanbul, it's blocked by two furious bulldogs. In the subsequent year, we've got another cartoon um, with a similar kind of setup. Uh, with a bear and a bulldog, and it includes the verse, you furious bulldog with big fangs bared, look at the east with greedy bloodshot eyes, you expect for easy prey there, you are prepared to win, but look, the huge bear is lying in your path, he is sleeping so far, but very lightly, when he wakes up, don't mess with him, otherwise you will pay for it. So we've got a completely new type of imagery here. We've got this bear, which is peaceful by nature, but only becoming aggressive when it's defending its legitimate interests. Um, so it doesn't uh, look fearsome only because it's sleeping. Um, we've got these different kind of connotations, James, of the bear image, um, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, the change from it being um, ignorant and lowly and strong to something that was ferocious and prepared to defend its homeland. Oh, and that and that segues very nicely into what I was going to say about bear attacks. So I was talking about earlier on about this book Steve, by Stephen Herrero, this Canadian professor who is probably the authority on bears in North America. Bear attacks, they're causes and avoidance um this is the revised edition i'm talking of here which it was published in 2002 and which was a, a revision of a classic um work in 1985 so all sorts of nuggets of historical joy in this but i wanted to just start by just sort of outlining how many bears it is estimated are in north america it's north america that they that they study it's estimated that there are between half a million black bears in north america and possibly up to as many as 700,000. Uh, so we're looking at we're looking at an awful lot of bears. Um grizzly bears um on the other hand are much less uh common. Uh, there are about 35,000 in the whole of North America and just a thousand in the mainland United States, most of which are in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, so they're, they're sort of scattered, scattered around. The thing about these bears is that they are, they are 
particularly big. So they weigh something like uh, 650 pounds. Uh, if you think about that in English stones, that is an extraordinarily large animal. And you have to be very wary of them. They are incredibly strong, incredibly agile. They can climb up trees. They can chase you wherever they want to. Powerful claws, incredibly powerful jaws they are attracted by the scent of food they're attracted by you know if you are menstruating uh, for example they're attracted by the scent of that um, so you need to be really careful and when you go to campgrounds in the united states people are very um, very careful about how they hang the food away from the camp because what you don't want to do is go to sleep in your tent stinking of hamburgers that you've been um, that you've been cooking up uh, with your with your rubbish, uh, you know, just by you, or a Snickers bar at the bottom of your sleeping bag, um, because bears will be attracted to this. Now, the book is at pains to add that bears do not attack uh, very commonly. They they rarely attack. Um, but, of course, there are a number of recorded attacks. It's estimated that between 1960 and 1980, around 500 people were attacked uh, by black bears. Uh, so roughly we're looking at 25 attacks a year. Uh, and not all of these were, were, fate, were, were fatal at all. Um, now, how do you prevent bears coming... Um, and you know how do you ward off uh, a black bear uh, herrero makes a number of suggestions um the first is that if you are confronted by a bear you might be wandering along the trail and you suddenly you know come across a bear and what do you do <laughs> one of the first things he suggests is that you should make a lot of noise now would you do this <laughs> i'm not sure i would i would i would do this but he recommends you know getting the pots and pans off your <laughs> out of your pack and banging them together or throwing sticks and stones or even running at the bear uh, that's certainly not um that's certainly not something that I would do. Um, the idea is also that you make yourself incredibly big and sort of put your arms up in the air. And in fact, I have seen uh, on, I think it's it's Facebook Reels, uh, if, I'm, if I'm thinking correctly, I've seen several examples of individuals who are running along uh, trails in the United States and come across a bear. And one that I saw recently did have a guy who kept going but made himself incredibly large, putting his hands above his head and the bear sort of went off in the other direction. The problem also is that elsewhere in the book, uh, it also says that these tactics may in fact just provoke the bear. So, so quite what you're supposed to do, I don't know. The book is then full of all sorts of examples of people who were attacked by bears. And one of my favourites, although I, I'm not sure favourite is the right uh, word, but one of the sort of scariest is an account from 1973. And it's based in Yellowstone National Park. And it involves two teenagers uh, called Mark Seeley and Michael Witten. And they were out for a hike and they come across a female bear, a mother bear, and her cubs and of course a mother threatened by 
two humans coming between her and her cubs goes absolutely berserk. Now, these guys uh, thought that it would be really good if they ran away and climbed up the nearest tree. Um, the bear can run up to 35 miles an hour. So that is pretty, it's pretty fast. Um, they climb up the tree. Uh, and of course, the thing with bears, as I was saying earlier on, is that they can climb up trees. They are incredibly good climbers. And so um, when Michael Witten climbs up the tree, the the bear promptly follows him up, climbs up, grabs him by the ankle and slowly just grabs him down and then on the ground she began begin sort of biting him and mauling him you know hugely injured his friend who's up the other tree tries to shout at the bear to warn the bear off and promptly the bear turns round and uh, climbs up the tree brings him down and starts mauling him now then uh, the two young men pretend to play dead they basically lie there very still and this is exactly what the instruction manuals say you should do although whether again whether whether I would have the the, the sort of presence of mind to be able to do this in such a terrifying uh, set of circumstances uh, I don't know but would you get this Sam the bear then leaves and and goes off so there we are. There's my sort of starter for 10. Uh, Stephen Herrero's Bear Attacks, um, 1985, um, and uh, the history of bear attacks and how to prevent them. Uh, whenever I walk now, I'm going to carry pots and pans around with me, um, particularly when going on a trail. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So I've um, got a different sort of aspect to the story here, and this is uh, people not being attacked by bears, but deliberately choosing to spend their time with bears uh, which I thought was a fascinating way of thinking about this and the way to look at this is to look at the seasonal travels of animal trainers um, in the, the mid-19th century. Now in Italy they were known as Orsanti and they were particularly from the um, Italian Apennine region um, and they moved around from there to the rest of Europe primarily coming out of Parma um, they didn't just go to Europe, they also roamed around Italy itself, uh, but also we know they got to Turkey, Russia, Scandinavia. And these are people who are travelling by foot, they have carts as well, they also travel with their animals. Um, so you have you need to imagine this kind of motley collection of men, boys, uh, but also with them, bears... Uh, and also camels and monkeys. I was interested in this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, is that you've got uh, people travelling, um, and that links to some really interesting histories about the movements of people. The movements of people around Europe, the kind of social classes of the people who are moving. And it's really important to emphasise here that um, the lower classes of Europe were, were not immobile. And it's quite easy to assume that if you're brought up in a isolated village and you have um, few means of actually travelling around, that everyone stayed where they were. Actually, that really wasn't the case. And you've got all sorts of local migrations, 
um, career migrations as well. And it really does affect the whole European social landscape from around the, the late 1500s onwards. And this movement's very much linked with the history of poverty and also the history of charity and people looking after these people who are moving. So stability is not actually something that um, is linked with the, with, with, with uh, poverty in particular, but rather more the, the, those who are who have the money to be stable, the money to stay where they are, and they can get other people to come to them with what they need. So these bear trainers are, are one of lots of different examples of seasonal workers who are uh, travelling around. Knife peddlers is another one, particularly um, from this Italian region, uh, where in winter people would travel down from the mountains and um, and and sell knives and sharpen knives. They're also travelling healers, also known as charlatans, um, which offer basic medical care. Which I think it was pretty basic, uh, but basic medical care. Um, now, this travelling obviously has an effect on the people who were left behind. I thought it was a very interesting letter here that was preserved from... Um, from the mid-19th century, which is written uh, um, by a lady who's longing for her husband's return. I waited for you day by day. I waited and waited long and long. Oh, how unhappy I will be by the time August arrives. Oh, what a long time it is for me. Oh, how will July pass? What a long month it is for me. Um, there's also some fascinating uh, material relating to who these people were. We've got one here from Francesco Noberini, a professional um, a traveller here, and he is from the village of uh, Piacenza. 22 years old, short stature, long face, short black hair, large forehead, grey eyes, ordinary nose, mediocre mouth, a round chin leaving from this village, moving to France to show wild animals. And that is signed there. Uh, interesting date, this, the 11th year of the French Republic. Uh, so off the top of my head, um, the first French Republic will be 1791. So the 11th year, that'll make that 1802. Um, very good math skills there, Sam. Thank you very much. I was a bit panicking there. Um <laughs> It might be 1803. It depends whether the first French Republic was 1791 or 1792. Probably 1791. Um, another a lovely example here. This is um, Antonio Bernabo, and is in, uh, he he vanishes. Well, he doesn't vanish. He goes off off with his bears for eight years, and he finally comes back. And his mum says, "Look, you're dead." When he arrived, which I thought was quite an interesting way of saying it. She recognises him for the scar on his forehead. She gives him a hug. Um, and finds out what he's been up to. And my goodness me, does this guy have an amazing life. So he spent the last years travelling to um, distant places to buy more exotic beasts to show. In 1879, he made it to the Crimea, where he buys 57 camels to go with his bears. Um, he's in Odessa. He meets a chap from Masanti. And um, they, they go performing with a dog and a monkey for a while. Um, and that's at the state point where he's given up for lost. But he's not lost. He's gone to the Arctic where he goes and captures polar bears. Uh, by 1903, he's um, performing in front of the Turkish Sultan. The Turkish Sultan then buys his entire circus and makes him and all of his uh, his circusy associates. He makes them 
um, Knights of Constantinople. He then uses the money and the fame he's got from there to buy a larger circus, but it all goes wrong with the arrival of the First World War, and he ends up dying in 1933. So I thought that was a fascinating career there of someone starting off from a remote town in Italy, ending up in the um, in the in front of the Sultan of Constantinople having been to the Arctic Circle. So very much linked, James, with the way that these bears uh, really can help people and inspire people to move around. And it reminds us of just how much the population's moved around Europe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes, we are on quite a wavelength today, Sam. Um, Because as listeners will know, we don't talk to each other uh, in between episodes. I mean, we obviously talk to each other, but we don't talk to each other about what we're going to do. So it is, in fact, a surprise to each other about how all our histories link in together in lots of different ways. And this idea of travelling links to what I was going to say about bear baiting in the 16th and 17th century, because it was not just in London that bear baiting happened, but there are people called bearwoods or bear keepers who basically travel around with bears, taking them to non-urban audiences, so outside of London, um, so that people could see bears and bear baiting. And the historical records of Dulwich College record travels of bearwoods around Kent and Gloucestershire in the early 1600s. There's also evidence from Congleton in Derbyshire that between 1588, the year of the Armada, and 1636, that town had at least 33 visits from bearwoods. So they're, they're very much itinerant. They don't just stay in one place. But I wanted to talk a little bit about bear baiting in Shakespeare's England. Any of you familiar with Shakespeare's plays will know 
there are frequent references to bears and probably the most famous of stage directions partly because it would have been so terrifically difficult to act on stage is in the winter's tale and it's that wonderful stage direction exit pursued by bear that sees the character antigonus who has dropped off the the foundling perdita to then be dis, the sort of the princess to be discovered later by some some shepherds and then reunited with the prince florizel that makes the whole play come back together antigonus who takes her to the island uh, basically uh, wanders off pursued by a bear and basically is mauled to death uh, by the bear um, there's another um, reference to bears in the 1606 Shakespeare play uh, Macbeth which is one of my favourites um, and it's where Macbeth is talking about uh, his enemies uh, and he describes um, himself as they have tied me to a stake I cannot fly but bear-like I must fight the course and so he's basically likening himself his his enemies have tied him up as if a bear and then he is being baited by them and I think this gives you a really good idea of the nature of bear baiting in 16th and 17th century England and those playgoers who would have gone to the, the theatres in London like Shakespeare's Globe Theatre would have walked past the bear gardens and there you would have seen bears but also bulls and dogs and other creatures who fought uh to the death for 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 the crowds who were there to see it rather like um rather like bullfighting uh in spain today and it it was bear baiting was incredibly popular um the way that it worked was you'd have a bear that was chained to a stake and then you would send in dogs to basically worry or bite the bear uh, they were set loose and then they would they would fight now the thing is that very few bears would would have died in this but they went through quite a few dogs and so the people who were in charge of the bear baiting had to go out and get quite a lot of of, of new dogs to come in um, willing recruits. willing 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 or unwilling recruits to come in yeah. and there some of these bears were so famous that they even had had names uh, there were celebrity bears called um, blind bess tom hunks george stone and one was even one called sackerson was even mentioned in the merry wives of windsor um, so these would have been a really sort of common feature on the the bank side um, by the Thames, uh, with the area that's now the sort of the South Bank, and it basically was a business. Um, and Philip Henslow and Edward Allen, uh, who were, I suppose, theatrical impresarios uh, during the late uh, late sixteenth century and early seventeenth century, they paid. £450, an extraordinary amount of money to become masters of the king's bears, bulls and mastiff dogs in 1604. And this basically gives them the right to licence bearwoods uh, and to breed mastiffs or dogs uh, on, the, on the king's behalf. Now, 
this kind of entertainment we have eyewitness accounts and eyewitness accounts vary quite quite widely there are some people who you know who seem to have really loved it uh, there's one visitor uh, from 1639 who wrote, um, there you may see, and he's talking about the Bankside district, there you may see the shouting of men, the barking of dogs, the growling of the bears and the bellowing of the bulls mixed in a wild but natural harmony. Another court official, Robert Lanham, wrote in 1575 of bear baiting, it was a very pleasant sport to see the bear with his pink eyes tearing after his enemies approach with biting with clawing with roaring with tossing and tumbling he would work and wind himself from them and when he was loose to shake his ears twice or thrice with the blood and the slather hanging about his physiognomy oh that sounds 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 quite a sort of horrific description and there are others who were, you know, were much less keen on it. And take, for example, the English diarist John Evelyn. Um, he pronounced the games a rude and dirty pastime. He saw them as barbarous cruelties. Now, as you probably all know, during the Civil War, um, Parliament uh, basically closed down the theatres. They were against the sort of the kind of entertainment offered. Uh, they did not, however, close down initially bear baiting. They were unable to stop that. It wasn't until f 1656 um, that Thomas Pride, who was High Sheriff of, of Surrey, closed it down and had the remaining bears shot. And it's not until then, until the Restoration in 1660, uh, that bear baiting uh, comes to the fore again and a new bear baiting arena is built uh, in 1662 in Southwark and bear baiting then continues through into the 19th century when it is made illegal in Britain in 1835. Uh, and would you believe that bear baying, um, which is basically having chained bears, um, and having dogs sort of snap at them continued in South Carolina in the United States until the 20th century. So it was only banned, only outlawed in 2013. So there we are. Um, gruesome sports. Really gruesome sports. So just to sort of end up, Sam, uh, I was looking at that brilliant project um, that Stephen Gunn uh, from Oxford uh, did around Tudor accidents and there is a great uh, example there of uh, an accident uh, involving bears. Um, on Wednesday the 4th of June 1567 Simon Poulter, one of the great entrepreneurs of the South Bank bear baiting shows, sent his servants out to announce that bears and a bull were to be baited with dogs at Paris Garden two days later. Banging a drum and leading along a bull and bear they reached Charing Cross between 10 and 11 in the morning. Startled by the drum and scared by the animal the horse drawing a collier's cup bolted and five-year-old George James was run over. So there we have a sort of bear bear-related um, a bear-related accident. The one thing that I want to end on, though, is Lord Byron's bear. Uh, Lord Byron, uh, in his time at Trinity College, Cambridge, uh, actually kept a, a bear. Uh, he wrote to a friend, I have got a new friend, the finest in the world, a tame bear, 
When I brought him here, they asked me what to do with him, and my reply was, he should sit for a fellowship. What's extraordinary about this is the college rules, uh, when Byron was at Cambridge, stipulated that he was not allowed to bring dogs uh, into uh, college. Uh, he, he thought that uh, he thought that actually there was no. Um, there was nothing that said he shouldn't bring a bear, and so he did. And when he leaves uh, the college, he takes it back uh, to his ancestral pile, and then it, it sort of it goes out and is sort of is allowed to um, to sort of to um, to sort of roam uh, roam around the place with all his other wild animals that he had, um, and and apparently he ha- he he took it to Newstead Abbey, where it joined a tame wolf to roam the grounds. So there we are, Sam. That's the end of our history of bears. Unexpected history of bears. <laughs> I love doing the, the unexpected history of animals. I think we should do more of them. Sharks was particularly entertaining. Maybe we should do ants. Oh, oh. Spiders. Have we had done spiders? I think we, no, I don't think we have. I think we should do both of those. But I think we should do secrets next. I think secrets would be okay, splendid. Fine. Yeah, let's do secrets. Okay, guys, um, thank you all so much for listening. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Hope you did do. Please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime history, the history of the sea, as you all should be, please do listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And I'd like you all to follow me on social media. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and befriend us there. Check out our website. So soon is Christmas upon us that you can go there and not only see our back catalogue of episodes, but also uh, purchase signed copies of our books. Uh, what would make somebody in your life happy? Uh, what would make them happier than a signed copy of a history? of the unexpected series book or big book i can't think and also if you'd like to if you'd like to support what we're doing to try and change the way in which we think about the past head over to our patreon page histories of the unexpected.com okay take care guys be well cheerio deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.